0: So I was uh, doing some reading this week and it was unusual for me because I was reading about American football and you know, that's wrong in every way, as far as I can see, that sport. I know there's some Americans here who will beat me up afterwards. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, it's not football, it's more rugby. Um, But um, I was surprised to read this, actually, when I was reading about it. It said, uh, warning label uh, from football helmet makers. It's not football, it's American football. But anyway, football uh, helmet makers shut sports, who are a major supplier of uh, those helmets used in American football, And on those helmets, they have uh, a written warning, and I'll read it to you. It says, warning, no no helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries while playing football. And the warning label uh, continues with some information about the symptoms for concussions, and it has a conclusion. And the conclusion is, uh, to avoid these risks of playing football do not engage in the sport of football <laughs> and if you visit their website you have to tick a checkbox just to say you've read these warnings and everything like this and this could actually sum up our passage that today we've got a completely honest passage going on today it's about discipleship it's about that counting the cost of following jesus and the risks involved when it comes to uh, following Jesus and the persecution, which could be a reality if you do follow Jesus. The passage is completely honest about what it means to be a Christian. The Bible says, to avoid the risks of discipleship, do not engage in following Jesus. That should be stuck on the front of every Bible It's a perfect passage for today. It's perfect for Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday warns us of the risks of following a man who rides on a donkey. Be prepared because following him can lead to death. And also, it's perfect on a day when we're celebrating with baptism because when we get baptised, we say, I've read the label and I'm up for the risk. I'm on for following that man on the donkey I'm so up for it, in fact, I'm ready to drown. You can see the drowning this evening, we just had the sort of splashing today, but the symbolic nature of baptism is to drown. When you're baptised, you're not signing on for an easy life, but the life of following Jesus, whatever it may bring. And it is risky, it's demanding, and there's a real warning attached to following Jesus. It's not about an easy life, it's not about easy solutions. If you want comfortable Christianity, baptism certainly isn't for you. It's far more demanding and dangerous than that. I uh, watched Paddington uh, yesterday. It was great fun. And I loved the bit in it where Mr. Brown cal- calculated the risk of having Paddington in the house rose by 4,000%. It's the same with Jesus. The risk rises 4,000%. And we see this in the church we're looking at today, the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2. The reality of following Jesus was completely difficult. It was poverty and it was pain. It was risky. What we see happening to Christians in Iraq, on our news, in Syria, in North Korea and many other places, is exactly what was going on in this place, persecution. Again, I was uh, reading this week about uh, that country, Laos. It's a communist country next to Vietnam, if you don't know, uh, where it is completely difficult uh, to follow Jesus. Now, we're an evangelical church here, and I don't know about you, but apart from having to pack up the kids and get them in the car this morning and then endure uh, all those terrible roads in e- Edinburgh, I found it relatively straightforward to get to church. Yeah, some of you are looking a bit stressed, but yeah, it, it was straightforward. However, if you're an evangelical Christian in Laos, you're likely to be asked to fill fill one of those fill-in-the-blank kind of forms. Let me read it to you. It says, I, and then you insert your name, who live in, and you insert your address, believe in a foreign religion which the imperialists have used for their own benefit to divide the united front and to build power for themselves against the local authorities. Now, I and my family clearly see the intentions of the enemy and regret the deeds which we have committed. We have clearly seen the goodness of the party and government. Therefore, I and my family voluntarily and unequivocally resign from believing in this foreign religion. Now, if you don't sign the form, you can expect humiliation, harassment and persecution. You can expect imprisonment, and torture. Yet despite this, you're having to do this, there is still a church in Laos. People are still meeting with Jesus and still following him. Jenny, my wife, visited Laos a few years back now and despite all the persecution she saw and the difficulty it was to be a Christian there, she has stories of completely inspirational Christians who live in, with this kind of terror week in, week out, they are threatened day in, day out and yet they are completely in love with Jesus that they will witness to him wherever they are and Jesus is still building his church there despite the opposition. Being a Christian in our world can be difficult. Being a Christian 2,000 years ago was the same reality, it was part of the package, there was a cost. If there's no cost, You have to ask yourself, how effective is our Christianity? The Christians of Smyrna lived the reality, the costly reality. But their persecution wasn't just in the form of a corrupt government like in Laos. It was also from people, and perhaps people who should have been their friends, who could have protected them, but instead decided to turn their backs on Christian Friends, let's just explore this place, Smyrna of Revelation two, because on paper it sounds like it's a brilliant place to live. It sounds, if I'm honest with you, a little bit like Edinburgh. It was a prestigious city. It was beautiful. It was one of the few ancient cities which was planned with wide avenues and impressive architecture. So think New Town rather than old town. It had a vibrant economy, it was wealthy, it was more Barton than Granton. It was built on a busy port, it could have quite easily had a royal yacht moored there. It was a city of cultural significance, book festivals would have been its speciality. The epic poet Homer hailed from there, had loads going for it. It was aspirational, well-educated, professional, great houses, great jobs, great schools. It was comfortable. The main difference it has to Edinburgh is it had a great climate but we can't have everything. There was not what was not to like about living there. And the other thing which was great about it, it was it even smelt good. Um, it was the place where that pricey perfume called myrrh came from, hence this name, name, Smyrna. And uh, myrrh was highly prized, especially by those embalming, obsessed Egyptians. You might, might remember also that myrrh was one of the gifts Jesus had from those uh, wise men who uh, visited him, but also it had been one of the perfumes used as he was prepared for burial. It was at his birth and it was at his death. It was at the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It was a valuable resource. Smyrna had cornered the market for it. The other fact was Smyrna was a proud city with royal roots. It was a city which was destroyed, but because of the beauty of the area, Alexander the Great saw the ruins and he decided to rebuild it. It was dead and now is alive. He did such a good job when you saw it from the port. You saw this beautiful crown-like town emerging from the sea. And one final fact we need to know is it had a strong and vibrant and engaged Jewish community, a community who would raise money for the city, and they had special privileges because of this engagement. The key one being, they were, which what they were allowed, which was very significant to them, was they didn't have to kneel down and worship Nero at that sort of emperor-worshipping time of the year. This was a special privilege which enabled them to have some integrity on their faith. And there was, as because if you're Jewish, There's only one God who could be worshipped. There were no other gods. And these details are so important as we delve into the passage. They help us understand that Jesus really did speak in a personal way to that community. And so in verse 8, Jesus speaks, and he introduces himself by saying, he is the first and the last. In other words, he's reminding the church in Smyrna That even though they think they are weak, and even though they think they are not in control, they don't think it, they know it. And even though life is completely difficult, even though pain is their reality, and even though they've got people just bossing them around the whole time, the actual fact is, Jesus is in control. Jesus has got it covered. But he says more than this. He says, he is the first and the last. He has died and he's come to life again. He reminds them of his personal reality. He was actually in a similar place to them. His life was completely out of control, which is actually what Palm Sunday is about Jesus releasing control and the start of Jesus' intense suffering. And yet Jesus. Is come through it into the reality of the other side. His move from pain and suffering and persecution into complete freedom that the resurrection brings. His move from being in the pain they are in to being in control. Just as their town was destroyed and rebuilt again, so was he. It's no longer pain and chaos for Jesus, it's joy and life. And that's the reality Jesus is pointing the church to. But Jesus isn't offering platitudes here he's not saying don't worry you're going to be all right because i was you know that's my experience i was okay so you'll be okay because he goes on in verse 9 and says i know i know and i'm aware of what's going on with you for me that's the most wonderful thing about jesus he knows he's got empathy he understands our emotion and he's in it he knows what we are the reality of that life It's not this kind of manipulative knowing, sort of this big brother camera looking at us kind of knowing. When he says he knows, he says he's in the situation and he realises the impact it has on us. And out of that understanding, Jesus' knowing means he draws alongside. And he was encouraging the church in Smyrna that he's alongside them when they most need it. Today, Jesus whispers into our lives. He whispers into our pain and our confusion and our difficulties. And he's next to you now, and he's saying, I know. He loves us all here completely, and he's still the quiet voice, and he still whispers, I know. He's not judging you, though. He's not sitting there judging you and saying, I know. He's doing something completely different. He's saying, I love you. Please remember the complete truth of God's love for you. He loves you, and as he whispers to you, I know he's offering you resurrection life, which gives strength and it changes everything. But it's not just comforting words either, because to these struggling Christians, he reminds them of the big picture of what it means to follow him. He says he knows their present reality of poverty, but the truth of the matter actually is you might be poor, but the, the actual complete truth is you are rich. Life might be tough for them, they might be on the poorest edges of society, living in a big posh town where poverty would probably seem even harder for them, but the long-term future for them, the long-term truth for them is they are rich, they are the ones with the future. They are the ones with life. They are the ones with the long term, which will have everything. Right now is tough, but Christianity is much more than right now in this moment. Carry that big picture with you in your heart. Have that long-term picture of the reality which Christianity brings in your heart. Short-term gains might be fun, but don't let them destroy the long-term reality. In Christianity, there's always more. But Jesus goes on and he's more specific. He knows the people who should be their friends, the Jews, are causing them a lot of trouble. He even calls the synagogue, he doesn't hold his punches, he says that's the synagogue of Satan and accuses the Jew- Jewish community of being slanderous. So the Jews of Smyrna back then had caused the Christians... A lot of grief and it must be said for the Christians there it was completely difficult because the reality as Tom Wright says was that they were Jewish to the core remember the first converts of Christianity were Jews and yet the first persecutors of Christians were Jews too there was a tension Christians thought they were the continuation of the Jewish faith and Jesus was the fulfillment of the faith and the Messiah that had been longed for was now found. But the Jews felt that this was something completely new and they didn't like the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead and so is God's true true Messiah and King of Israel. And in Smyrna, even though the synagogue would have been the first place to have had the gospel presented in that place, because remember Paul went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the synagogue also became the first place to reject the gospel and worked actively against Christians, and so in actual fact against Jesus. And so they slandered Christians and made their lives completely difficult. This influential group in Smyrna high society worked against the Christians and became their enemy, hence the Satan description. Satan basically means the adversary or enemy of God. And their crime was not to help the Christian community to share in the same exemptions as them. Remember, they didn't have to bow down to Nero and worship him. And as Christians saw themselves as the continuation of the Jewish faith, they too wanted the same exemption and wanted the synagogue to help them get this. The request was refused and it led to Christians having a difficult time, beyond difficult, persecuted, being excluded, being beaten up getting the worst jobs, being poor. Simple fact is, the church could have been helped in Smyrna, but the synagogue worked against them, and it made it hard for them. So the authorities did everything to obliterate the church. John Stott said, persecution is simply the clash between two irrevocable value systems. But for the church in Smyrna... It was three systems. The first was the Jewish and then the government persecuted them and Christians were in all of this. And so it's painful and hard, which is why Jesus uses such extreme language here. He understands the severity of in their situation. And in their pain, in verse 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. But it's not don't be afraid because things are going to be better. Jesus' don't be afraid is, don't be afraid because things are going to get worse. There's going to be prison, there's going to be more persecution, there's going to be the threat of death. It's all hard stuff, and it's the reality of faith. Remember, Christianity is not a call to a comfortable, pain-free Existence. Aziz Fernando, who's a Christian leader from Sri Lanka and he works in the poorest communities in that place, in his book, uh, The Call to Joy and Pain, writes this The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there's inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. He goes on, the good life, comfort, convenience and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something's gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth because God intends us to grow through trials. Jenny and I uh, went to watch uh, the film Still Alice a couple of days ago. It's about a film uh, of somebody who's suffering from the early uh, onset of Alzheimer's disease and Julianne Moore is quite superb in it, recommended, difficult film but recommended. And the struggles were terrible, not just for her, but you saw it affect her whole family. And her disease was difficult for her to work out because she was an in-control, rich and successful woman. All of a sudden, life went beyond her control and she sort of had to get through it and it was hard. One of the things I want to say here is, in Christianity, we have to accept there is a huge risk of being a disciple of Jesus. Lived out, it can mean hard things happen where perhaps we lose control of our lives. But we shouldn't chase these hard things. Some Christians will think, well, I'm going to chase it then if that's what it's about. Because we should rejoice when life is good. It is a blessing when that happens. But we should be prepared for hard thing. We don't chase suffering for the sake of it, but when it comes, we recognize it. We don't run from it, and we keep going through it. I've spoken a bit over the last couple of years uh, about Saeed Aberdeen. I do so because he inspires me, uh, and we've been praying for him as a church uh, for the last couple of years. If you don't know who he is, he's an Iranian pastor uh, who's in prison for his faith uh, right now, at this moment, in Iran And it's completely tough for him. He's got a very young family. His children have sort of doubled in age since he's been in prison. And it's very hard. And for his wife, Nagma, it's very difficult. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, she was just saying how hard it is for him at the moment because he's just witnessed six of his fellow prisoners being executed. And he witnessed the crying and the wailing of their families. And it was extraordinary for him. This man who shouldn't be in prison is in the midst of all of that. And yet, he keeps on going. There's little joy for him, is there? It's estranged from his family. He's actually in quite poor health, and the prison he's in is a grim one. However, this week, though, there has also been a glimmer of hope, which we just need to pray into those of us who are praying for him. President Obama has pleaded his case with the Iranian authorities. Please pray for the miracle of his release. Just do it. It's easy. Just rem- remember Saeed in your prayers. He's doing, he was just doing a job like I do in Edinburgh. He was just doing his job. He's actually helping orphan children and he's being persecuted deeply for it. But his witness is, despite everything, Jesus is there. Jesus is in it, giving him strength. He hasn't given up. Jesus doesn't take trials away from us. But he helps us to live through them. And he was helping the church in Smyrna to live through the reality of their situation. He says, don't be afraid. It's a phrase Pastor Saeed needs to hear again and again. It's a phrase for our times, for our place, and for our culture. Because even though we live in this so-called free West, we, we, we live pretty much in a culture of fear. We look to, into the future and we're scared and so what do we do we predict the worst case scenario we feel a lump or a bump and we fear for our health we worry if we declare a secret about myself will people accept me as i am we oversave or we overearn because we worry do we have enough our personal decision making is made up on fear We're already seeing politicians make us feel fearful in order to get us to vote for them on May the 7th. Fear becomes a motivator. And yet it needn't be the motivator for negativity, but instead the motivation to run to God. Just like my youngest, Jonah, when he was scared last week, turned to me for a hug. Fear is the thing which should spur us to turn to God. We're all scared of something or someone every now and then. When we note fear in our emotions, it becomes an opportunity to turn to God for protection, assurance, wisdom, maybe to give us comfort. Maybe it's the healing we need, a hope or the future. Fear can be negative, but Jesus here turns it into a positive And the church in Smyrna, as we've heard, have every right to feel fearful as they were being persecuted and it was going to continue. And uh, they were going to suffer and it looks as though it's going to be hard. They needed to prepare themselves for an uncertain time and Jesus was just being completely honest with them. Like him, they were going to have to suffer. Like him, they would have to go through an impossible time. But also, like him, there was hope, there was glory there was release, there was resurrection, there was new life, there was the victor's crown. They would rise out of the water like their city, wearing that crown. And the way they would get this crown is by keeping on going, by keeping being faithful, by sticking with Jesus, by trusting that one day all that rubbish was going to be dealt with and it was going to be sorted. For this Impossible church, all through the passage, Jesus is making them promises, deep promises. All through these verses, actually, Jesus is giving them hope. He's telling them a secret. In these verses, the secret, I think, of Christianity is revealed. They become the most honest invite for us to follow Jesus and to keep going with him. They say Christianity isn't about an easy life and comfortable feelings and having it all. It's much more than that. It's about God entering in and us inviting him to journey with us wherever we are. It's saying we can have a relationship with God and that can give us the motivation and the encouragement to live life to its fullest, even if that life is extremely hard. And as we do this, we notice incredible things. A movement happens. You see it in the passage. It's a movement from being out of control to letting God take control. It's a movement from being fearful to faithfulness. It's a movement from being ruined to being rebuilt, from brokenness to wholeness, from fear to faithfulness, from being poor to being rich, from being defeated to being victorious, from feeling shame to wearing the crown, from death to life. This is the work of God, has been across the whole of history. He enters in, he transforms, he starts with our internal life and then he gives us strength to live our external life. There's no easy fixes with God, but there is an irresistible hope. That's what Jesus did by dying and rising again from death. That's the secret to life. The only way the church in Smyrna could keep going was by knowing this secret. And the question for us today as we're sat here is, do we know this secret? And the great thing is, we can know this secret. We can know it personally. And it can give us strength and hope to get through this life. And more impressively, to get through the next life. God bless you.